everybody, and welcome to the Whale Tales podcast. I'm Nicole. And I'm Sarah, and together we are the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today, we are diving into the wild world of cetacean parenting strategies, plus talking about twins. Ooh. Also, of course, we have a super exciting story uh, for you, starring one of uh, our favorite mothers. Aww. Aww. So get comfy, because it's going to be a mother of an episode. Okay, so speaking of mothers, uh, Mother's Day has just happened when you are listening to this podcast, and Father's Day will be happening shortly. So we decided that for our discussion on this episode, we wanted to talk about parenting strategies to celebrate mothers and fathers. Except, sorry dads, you don't really have anything to do in any cetacean population anywhere. Dads just don't sorry we love you but um cetacean babies maybe not so much and that's why you're not involved (laughs) um so we'll be focusing on mothering strategies in researching for this we found that a lot of mothering strategies are similar between different groups of toothed whales uh, and that those strategies are very very different from the strategies that baleen whales have as mothers So, Lindsay, do you want to talk about maybe some of the things that are similar between the toothed whales and baleen whales when it comes to their mothering strategies? And then we'll talk about differences after. Yeah, so, which something that we start off with that comes to absolutely no surprise is that both toothed whales and baleen whales nurse their young. It's uh, one of the main definitions of being a mammal is nursing your young, having mammary glands, which we'll talk about more later. Um, So, yes. They all nurse their young. Um, And then there's a couple of other ones that also kind of make sense from all animal points of view. They protect their calves from predators. Um, And then they also um, do this kind of thing that's called slipstreaming or carrying. So I don't know if any of you are familiar with the, like the kinds, you know, when the Tour de Force, nope, sorry, Tour de France. (laughs) bike guys they all like lean in behind the other bike guys and then they're in their their slipstream and then they don't have to pedal as hard because of the air um i don't really understand how it works it's something to do with physics but it's a similar aspect of um whales they also have a slipstream because they're giant and they're moving at a decent speed through the water and so their calves um are always very close to them to, to be protected and to stay close and uh for lots of different reasons but they do slipstream um, so they don't have to expend as much energy when they're moving. They've also been known, um, both tooth whales and baleen whales, to carry. I'm using quotations, even though you can't see me, uh, Mark. So sometimes they'll be kind of like half on, half off of their mothers. Or sometimes they're on them, but not for very long. And not really for the purpose of carrying, but more definitely for fun. Especially as the calves go, grow older, calves... Uh, whale calves are very rambunctious across all kinds and they love to play um so there's lots of different footage especially of humpback calves who are adorable even though they're like i don't even know 15 feet long um just like rolling all over their mothers and their mothers just being like "Ugh, i haven't eaten in six months leave me alone um (laughs) been pregnant for 17 months or whatever i don't know how long humpbacks is 12 something um but Yes, so they do that. And then there's also cultural trans- transmission or teaching. So similarly to 
uh, humans, of course, and other large mammals. Um, whales do teach their offspring how to do things, including hunt and breach and whatever else. Plus breathe. Yes, also breathe. <laughs> um, which is, you know, a thing that they actually do have to learn, which is weird. <laughs> like the first breath is instinctual. Um, as we, as we know, once, uh, a whale being born is a crazy thing because it comes out tail first. Um, and then they directly go to the surface. And then after that, they're like, wait, how did I do that? (laughs) (laughs) Did I jump out of the water every single time and expend all of my energy to breathe? And the moms are like, no, 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 do this. Just lie here and open your blowhole. Um, yeah. So there's breathing. And then there's also like, uh, finding food, but also, and then playing, which also has a lot, like some play behaviors are also important for other things, like cleaning your body off of certain things, like breaching can be used to remove unwanted uh, barnacles or something like that, and also to look to see what's going around you, and also to com- communicate with other whales, which we'll get into, I'm sure, one day. Um, but all of these behaviors that you see in animals, regardless of whether or not they um, seem like play or not, are taught. And also are important for their lives and their survival. Sarah, do you want to talk to us about some of the um, strategies that only baleen whales have? Sure. So the biggest thing for baleen whales is that they tend to be migratory. And so they are in one place during fall, you know, the colder parts of the year, and in another place in the warmer parts of the year. And usually when they're in the colder area, that's where they do all their feeding Baleen whales eat krill and other small uh, animals that live in the water column. And those are really only available in cold areas. But those cold areas are not great places to have babies. So these baleen whales do usually some sort of migration to a nursing or a calving area. And that's where they will give um, birth to their young. And because of that, baleen whale moms don't get to eat while they're nursing. (laughs) Yeah, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Awful. Because mm-hmm. I've never been more hungry in my entire life, including while I was pregnant, <laughs> than I am when nursing my son. It's ridiculous. And, y- and your milk is only what some teen percent? Yeah. Of fat and like uh, whale milk is like in its twenties and thirties percent fat. So they're expending. They're losing so much more of their fat. But than they have humans. a lot more body mass. Too. That's true. They do. Yeah, so they fast while nursing. And then I think probably because of that, their calves end up weaning relatively early compared to toothed whales, usually at around a year and a half. Um, and that's like a pretty hard limit. Like they um, they don't end up having as close of a relationship. And so, yeah, the, the mother whales um, wean their calves and that's kind of it. Like sometimes they'll be seen with their calves for a bit longer, but um, yeah, I think it's pretty hard for uh, baleen whales to nurse their babies. Like they're not eating and they're, you know, somewhere that they can't eat until they do a huge migration in some cases. Um, Oh, and then the reason that they don't give birth in the places where the krill live is because also things that like to eat baby baleen whales live there, like sharks and killer whales. So, yeah, they go to somewhere safer for the calf, but uh, less nutrient rich for the mothers. So that was an interesting, I think that's probably the biggest 
thing that baleen whales do. There's a bunch of things that baleen whales don't do that toothed whales do. So Nick, do you want to talk about that? Sure, absolutely. Um, I'm just thinking about what a shock to the system it must be for baby baleen whales. Because sometimes it's shorter than a year and a half. Sometimes it's like six months after you were born if you get to the feeding grounds for some species. And it's like, see ya! (laughs) You're in a completely different part of the world. And I'm going to teach you how to get food. And then there you go. But tooth whales are very, very different. Um, and probably the socialization and the relationship is the biggest difference between tooth whales. Now, of course, all of the things that we're talking about, we can't say for sure are the case for every species of baleen whale and every species of tooth whale, uh, including dolphins and porpoises, because we don't know that for all species. There's a lot of species of cetacean, uh, that have been very, very poorly researched. Um, but in general, from what we do know, uh, Toothed whales, dolphins, and porpoises tend to build very strong relationships with their young. Uh, In some cases, this relationship can last for the entire life of the mom and calf, whichever one is alive longer. Um, And in some cases, it's just for, you know, five to ten years, but still, that's a really long time in the lives of these animals. Um, killer whales, for example, those southern residents and the northern residents here in British Columbia uh, are notorious for the fact that calves stay with their mother their entire life. Um, and especially for the male calves, they're all called mama's boys because they just want to stay with mama all the time. But this relationship is really, really important because they do nurse longer, but it also allows for a much larger transference of knowledge and culture. Specifically, uh, vocalizations are taught this way, regular hunting patterns and uh, sort of traveling, because it's not sort of a geographic migration that a lot of toothed whales do, but more of a following prey as it's going around in crazy weird ways through ocean currents. Um, and so that takes a lot of time to, to teach young animals. Uh, so that's definitely something that comes from the socialization. Also, what's really distinctly different between toothed whales and baleen whales when it comes to their calves is with baleen whales, there's obviously quite a lot of socialization between mother and calf while they are together, but they actively in a lot of cases specifically humpback whales avoid any other members of their species for socialization so it's mom and calf for as long as they're together and then nobody else gets to see that calf until boom i'm leaving you alone and you can go off and you know hang out with whatever you want Uh, but with tooth whales because they're generally traveling in larger groups anyway whatever it is that they're doing um, that calf socializes not just with their mother but frequently with many other members of their family whether they're blood related or not belugas especially travel in very very large groups of mothers and calves sometimes hundreds at a time all traveling together so those animals are likely not all related but there's sort of anti-belugas that get <laughs> turned into daycare services mm-hmm. and are taking care of sometimes five, six, seven calves all at once while moms are, you know, having coffee somewhere. <laughs> 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 or just away from their calves. Um, so there's a lot more socialization with other members of their species in the tooth whale group. Uh, and that close family relationship is really, really important there as well. The other thing that seems 
to be unique to toothed whales, though again, this could be entirely due to lack of study, is the fact that there is distinct vocal recognition between mother and calf in all toothed whale groups that have been able to be studied this way. That's a, that's a roundabout way of saying that it's really, really, really hard to study the vocalizations and specifically what the vocalizations mean of any species of cetacean. Um, but in bottlenose dolphins and beluga whales, for sure, there is published scientific research that shows that calves receive distinct vocal patterns. Um, in bottlenose dolphins, they're called signature whistles, and in beluga whales, they're called contact calls that are unique to the calf and sometimes even the calf and mother pair. So there's a call that the calf will make that only that calf's mother responds to and responds with a specific call back to that calf. Uh, and that's called the contact call, and that's how the mother and baby can keep in contact with each other in that situation where you're a beluga and there's, you know, a hundred moms and a hundred babies. <laughs> <laughs> Which one's my mom? <laughs> I was just hanging out with Auntie Sarah. <laughs> um, and in the dolphins, the signature whistle is the best way to describe it. Is It's like the dolphin's name. Um, at least that's how researchers kind of try to describe it, is that signature whistle is that animal's whistle, and it's the only animal that makes that signature whistle. And other dolphins, not just that dolphin's mom, but other dolphins recognize that signature whistle and can make it when they're trying to communicate with that dolphin. So cool. Yeah. Um, one thing that was really kind of funny when I was researching for this is, in general... It's to your benefit as a mother, whether you're a toothed whale or a baleen whale, to only nurse your own calf. Mm -hmm. Whether you're a baleen yeah. whale or a toothed whale, there's a lot of energy that you're expending to nurse your calf, and you obviously want your genetic material to continue on. Um, but in both toothed whales and baleen whales, there have been cases of mistaken identity nursing, <laughs> as it was. And the difference seems to be that in baleen whales, the calves try to nurse off of this. I, this was a research I was looking at with bowhead whales. And it seemed that sometimes when bowhead whales were together, even though they were trying to kind of avoid each other, the calves would get lost in this sort of geographic area where there were a few moms and might try to nurse off another mom and that mom would get mad <laughs> and would like actively bat them out of the way so in baleen whales mistaken identity nursing uh gets if it happens at all and it's pretty rare to see happen but if it does happen the mothers actively put a stop to it whereas the toothed whales take a very different much more laissez-faire approach they don't go off searching for nursing from others um, most of the time. Although, again, there's some research to suggest that at least in beluga whales, uh, belugas could possibly spontaneously nurse and so may sort of either adopt a calf and start nursing them or those anti-belugas might actually be nursing a whole bunch of different calves. Um, but when mistaken identity nursing happens, they're kind of like, eh, okay. Yep. <laughs> sure. <laughs> That's yeah. probably has to do with the fact that they ate that day. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. They're not and also, six months the, worth of hangry. Calf, yeah, and also the calf that they could be nursing could be 
like their niece or something yeah. or like yeah. closely related more so than in baleen whales just mm-hmm. they hang out if they're family groups yeah in some species anyways i just thought the picture of a baleen whale a bowhead whale swatting away yeah. a cow <laughs> it's just yeah. pretty ridiculous not happening. not happening no milk for you so that is a brief summary i guess a brief summary of everything that we know about the mothering strategies out there in the cetacean world, or at least everything that we could find while we were researching for this podcast. Uh, But definitely, if you, listener, have come across some research on different techniques that mother whales, dolphins, and porpoises have, we would love to hear about it. Yeah. Because this was fascinating. Who knew there were so many different ways to be a whale mummy? I know. They all do lots and lots and lots of work. Whether they're baleen whelms or tooth moms, they do a lot of work. So thankfully, they only have one calf to take care of at a time. Yeah, which leads us into our fun flipper fact, which is something that you may be wondering about, which is twins. They typically only have one calf. Um, in incidences of twins is believed to be uh, less than 1% of all cetaceans births are twins. And but again, that's, you know, cetacean births that we've seen. It's hard to know this. Um, and there's always going to be the chance that um, there was twins and one didn't survive until the researchers saw it and was able to report it. But the chances are pretty high that it's a single, single calf birth. And Sarah, why don't you tell us a little bit about why we know that? There's a few reasons. One is that whales are pretty big, but whale calves proportionally are also quite large. So um, there's not a lot of room in a whale womb for two full-size whale babies like they have to come out and they have to be able to swim on their own they have to be able to get to the surface on their own so they have to be fairly well advanced um compared to like uh i don't know humans (laughs) kangaroos yeah especially (laughs) kangaroos bunnies etc that sort of don't like especially the breathing i think is the biggest one like you know yes deer and horses and stuff come out like basically able to walk from minute one but they don't have to like be able to walk well enough to get up to the surface of the air, of the water, to breathe, right? So they have to be fairly well developed, so there's not a lot of room in there. As well as I was talking about earlier with especially baleen whales, um, but all whales, it takes a lot of energy to nurse these whale calves. They're expending a lot of energy. They're having to put on a ton of blubber. Uh, for baleen whales, they are not eating while nursing. Um, for other, for all whales, they're... Um, milk fat of their milk is intense so the amount of calories that the mother is having to spend to nurse one calf is insane also just like picture in your mind how whale (laughs) nursing would work (laughs) it's a complicated process it takes some time to learn um and it takes like a lot of coordination between mother and calf to like get good at it and so i don't think there's any way that you'd have enough time in the day to nurse two babies like yeah. God, would, no. No, no, no. It would no, be no. insane. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we've all seen beluga whales in particular in nursing. Mm-hmm. And it's um, an interesting process to watch. Like, everybody has to learn what they're doing. The nipple is, like, you know, down near the tail, kind of where you'd expect it to be, based on looking at a whale and where all their um, genitalia and stuff are. But, um yeah, the, the mother whale has to, like, lift her tail up in just the right position and, like, swim fast but not too fast. And it's it's a coordinated effort. So <laughs> the crazy thing to me is that it's also yeah. happening while they're both swimming. 
Yeah. And not yeah. and not breathing. <laughs> yeah. No. No, exactly. Well, the mother could be at the surface, yeah. but not necessarily. No. Well, and yeah. I just think about, so that's like, crazy. I had some troubles nursing my son when he was first born. It took us a couple of days, almost a week, to kind mm-hmm. of figure that out. Every other mom in the prenatal group that my husband and I went to when we got back together for a reunion when my son was a couple months old, every other mom in that class also had some amount of problems and some Mm -hmm. never got over it and and weren't actually able to nurse their children. And I'm just like, how Mm -hmm. did whales survive? Yeah, I know. (laughs) Determination. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And they, you know, had to do it swimming and Mm -hmm. yeah, not breathing. Yeah. Um, So so many reasons that whales wouldn't have twins uh but nicole there are a few documented incidents of twins so do you want to talk a little bit about those yes so there's sort of two different documentations of twins there is only one known documented case of a twin surviving and not both of them survived so there so we'll start with that there are zero cases that have ever been known either in human care or in the ocean where twins have been born to a cetacean mom and both of those twins have survived that doesn't happen to our knowledge however there was a set of beluga twins born in the sea world in san antonio in june 2009 And the male twin, uh, unfortunately, was stillborn, but the female twin was born viable and did survive. Uh, Her name was Bella. And that was thought to be, in 2009, the first and still to this day only documented case of a twin surviving in either human care or out in the ocean. And I say thought to be because... When I was researching this, I did actually happen upon one other case of a twin thought to have survived uh, in the northern resident community of killer whales here in British Columbia. Um, And for a very, very long time, there was thought to be a twin uh, alive and thriving with with calves of her own. But uh, I've researched that more. And uh, if you stay tuned to our next episode's fun fact, you will learn more about that story. Ooh, tantalizing. (laughs) But the other cool thing that we do know is not just, we're sure that twins are born out in the ocean like that that absolutely does happen um but again it's thought that likely neither twin survives because as sarah was saying probably both of them aren't developed well enough by the time that they're born to be able to actually survive um so the other thing that we know that happens even though also unfortunately these animals aren't viable and they don't survive is that conjoined calves are born where two fetuses sort of become conjoined or joined up or um, a lot of people know this is the Siamese twin syndrome um, in utero and develop to some extent and then are born and you assumedly are are stillborn and we know that this happens because at least based on everything I could find um, there have been seven documented cases of this where the calves I guess you would say um (laughs) wash up so I couldn't find what each of those seven cases were but the three that I could were super interesting um because they actually covered the three different groups of cetaceans (laughs) 
<laughs> in January of 2014 in California, in Baja, California, um, people found a conjoined gray whale calf. So a two-headed gray whale calf. Oh. Yeah, they're all two-headed, actually. That's all. And that's not to say that there aren't conjoined calves of different persuasions mm-hmm. born, but the only ones that have been documented washed up on shore are two-headed. So yeah, that was a two-headed gray whale calf. The pictures of that are crazy cool. <laughs> Um, and then also in 2014, but in August, in Turkey, a two-headed bottlenose dolphin calf was found on the beach. Um, and that was documented by National Geographic, and that's where I'm getting the seven documented cases, because that was thought to be the fifth documented case, but hmm. they weren't counting the gray whale earlier that year. And then third was just two years ago, in June of 2017, a two-headed harbor porpoise washed up in the Netherlands. So crazy. Yeah. So we will include pictures uh, of all of those in our show notes or links to the news articles where these were found because they are really strange and interesting. Yeah. Also in the show notes, I will put the um, first ever footage of when they put a GoPro on a humpback calf. So you can see what nursing looks like <laughs> from a humpback, from a, from a calf point of view. Um, so you get a little bit of idea of just how complicated it is. Because anytime you watch GoPro footage of a whale, you're like, this is harder than I was expecting it to be. So yeah, that was our fun flipper fact for this month's episode. Oh, I and forgot the song. Us- <laughs> fun flipper facts. Fun flipper facts. It's time. It's time for fun flipper facts. Yeah. So that brings us to our whale tale for this week. And this is one of my favorite whale tales in our whole collection. And one of my favorite animals that we um, have been lucky to see up here in British Columbia. So uh, Nicole's going to tell the story, but there's a little um, background information that will help you appreciate it even more um it's about a humpback and so here in british columbia uh through the 1960s or so humpbacks were being hunted here like a lot of whales and like in a lot of areas and so the humpback population was down to possibly around 1400 individuals which is not very many but in the last i don't know decade 20 years yeah the humpback population has been going great um, there's been a lot of effort to restore um, uh, forage fish populations, and I think that's helped. Also, like, not hunting them anymore has helped. Um, so there's about eighteen to 20,000 individual humpbacks that are seen throughout British Columbia. And humpbacks in BC are mostly here through April to October-ish. A few t- uh, sometimes stick around year-round. It's sort of unpredictable, but the bulk of humpbacks are here through from April to October. And then in October, they start heading south down to uh, mostly Hawaii and Mexico, I think, from here, different groups. And they go there to um, mate and have babies. And then when they're up here in British Columbia and north of here as well, they are chowing down on all kinds of krill. Um, so yeah, I think we're pretty lucky to have such a um, robust uh, humpback population and come back in British Columbia. and. Um, Nicole has a really great story about one of our favorite humpback individuals. 
Yes, we do have a story, a story that I want to share about probably my favorite humpback whale. Uh, her name is Big Mama. So Lindsay will share uh, after the story a little bit about Big Mama um, and why she's so famous around these parts. Um, but I love her a lot because she's a great mom and uh, she's also the first humpback whale that I knew how to identify. So uh, she's got a, a very distinct fluke pattern which helps a lot and she also has a habit of fluking perfectly every time because um, sometimes it can be really hard to tell these animals apart when you're out in rough seas. So uh, this particular story about Big Mama that I want to share happened in July of 2015. Uh, I was working part-time as a whale watch naturalist at that point and I was out with my boat of passengers looking for killer whales because that's all usually anybody wants to see when they go whale watching in British Columbia and there weren't any whales that we sort of knew of in the area at that time and we were actually headed home after a very long four hours of searching for orcas and when you have a crew and passengers of 25 people on board a vessel who have been out on the water getting progressively more and more depressed that they are, first of all aren't seeing killer whales but second of all aren't really seeing anything except the beautiful scenery uh, that we have on the water in British Columbia and you're starting to head home uh, it can it can start to feel a little <laughs> a little like you're gonna get thrown off the boat <laughs> on the way home. So we were coming back through pretty much the last stretch of the Gulf Islands before you head across the Strait of Georgia, right back to Vancouver where our berth was. Um, and it's very rare to see anything in the Strait of Georgia because it's a big body of water and you're going very very quickly through that so I wasn't having any high hopes for seeing anything as we were going to head home um, but as we were heading through this last channel before we get into the Strait of Georgia it's called Active Pass out of nowhere pretty much we saw two huge blows so I knew right away they weren't killer whales but I actually love seeing species other than killer whales and I particularly love when I see them with a group of passengers and can maybe change their minds and show them that killer whales aren't the only awesome things living in British Columbia. So we turn towards the blows and pretty much right off of the side of the vessel, uh, we were so perfectly timed because if we'd been just five minutes earlier, we would have already crossed into the Strait of Georgia and been going too fast to see them. Uh, they would have been behind us and never knew about it. We're too awesome humpback whales and we stuck around with them for about half an hour and we watched and we figured out that one was big mama the other one that she was with I presumed was her calf because like we've already talked about in this episode these animals aren't usually traveling together when they're migrating, they may be kind of around each other, but they're not necessarily socializing with each other. And these two whales were clearly socializing with each other and clearly not just traveling next to each other, but traveling together. They were interacting with each other um, and they were surfacing at the same time and, and fluking at the same time. Though, unfortunately, the second animal never fluked in our direction. So I didn't get a good picture and couldn't really tell who it was. So I don't have any clear consensus that it was Big Mama's calf and the one thing that did throw me off a little bit was it was also big. <laughs> now Big Mama 
has a very successful history of calving and so she's obviously got real fatty milk and she's really really good at bulking herself up to have more calves um, but this animal looked a little bit long to be a calf at the age that you would expect in June or sorry in July on their migration so who knows but it was really awesome and so great to see Big Mama and so great to see these two animals healthy and happy together and to share the story with my passengers of the humpback comeback. Um, and I did end up having a lot of people on board being really, really happy that they had the opportunity to see these amazing animals and they weren't disappointed that they didn't see killer whales. So that is a good day. Hooray! Yeah, yeah. So, as we said, um, some stats on Big Mama, also known as BCY0324, is her official number, and that's a whole other thing about why they're named that way, why the numbers and the letters and all, all of that, and um, that's a whole other thing that we could talk about forever, so we're just not going to. Um, <laughs> but um, Big Mama was cited for the first time that we like recited basically for the first time in Victoria in 1997. Um, they didn't know of course who she was. They just got a fluke shot of her. And, but she was one of the very first humpbacks to be seen in this Strait of Juan de Fuca um, in nearly a hundred years. So after all of the hunting and everything after the humpbacks started to finally come back to the sailor's sea, she was one of the first ones. And um, so she's really important for that reason. And then she just became this celebrity um, over the next 22 years because she is named the way she is because she has at least six or seven calves, um, some of which have had now had calves, so she is big grandmama. Um, <laughs> so she's had she had a calf in 2003 and 2006, uh, who is split fin, in 2010, in 2012, in 24, who was known as Beak, who I've never heard of. Um, and the most recent one is 2016's calf known as Pop-Tart, who was just seen two days ago swimming with a gray whale, which was weird. Um, but he, he, she, uh, they is alive and thriving. Um, so she produces uh, a lot of great calves. And um, we have seen so her not, this... It's, sorry, it's not impossible. Uh, it's rare that humpbacks stay with their moms past that sort of annual migration. But it's not impossible that the humpback that I saw Big Mama with in 2015 was actually beat her calf from 2014. Because Correct. that has happened. Yeah. Yeah, and be like you gotta think about the math. Like the twenty like Beak was born in twenty fourteen. So like she was the that calf would have been spotted here in like this first time in the summer of twenty fourteen and then potentially respotted because also we don't know um not necessarily with Big Mama, but some cat, some humpbacks do stay here all year round. They definitely, it's, it's not every year, even though Big Mama definitely has had some years where she shows up the, in one summer with a calf and then next summer she's not with a calf and the next summer she is. So due to gestation, she would be pregnant in this other summer. Um, so basically like every winter she either gives birth or gets pregnant. Um, and she definitely was doing that for a while, but we don't know. So that could have been Beak, for sure. Um, like, yeah, been like a year, year and a half, which would make more sense for the size that you saw. Um, Although she would so, have been pregnant with Pop-Tart at that point. She would have been, yeah. 
So Big Mama was seen in Hawaii during the Splash Project, um, which it will link to. It's a uh, basically was this huge cataloging of all um, the humpbacks that we could see to get numbers and to get IDs and to get an understanding of where the whales in BC were migrating to. Um, so should we know that she is a Hawaii whale? She was also seen in 2006. Sorry, that would have been the Splash Project 2006. And she was also seen uh, in Hawaii in February 2018. And just recently, she was seen twice in Hawaii in March this year. So she's, um, we don't know if she's on her way back now, probably. Um, but she hasn't been seen here yet, because that would be super fast to get <laughs> here from Hawaii. Um and a lot of this more recent info we have of her with the sightings, especially with the Hawaii stuff, since like we saw her in 2006 there, but nothing since, until last year is due to our friends at Happy Whale. Yeah, um, yeah, who are a great um, project kind of taking over where the Splash Project stopped, which is um, and using a lot of great citizen science of cataloging whales and where they were seen and when they were seen. Um, and we'll put a link to the show notes and we'll, we post about them all the time about they do, they have this kind of thing that I like to think about. It's like a CSI-like database um, to identify flukes. They have great algorithms and things uh, to help uh, identify flukes that are unknown so that they can match them up to uh, different kinds of whales, but they also are great at keeping track. So that's how we know that Big Mama was seen twice in March in Hawaii this year and that she was seen multiple times whenever last... Um, last summer here and et cetera, et cetera. And that is with all sorts of whales, um, humpback whales. They do a lot of other ones, sperm whales and blue whales and all sorts of things. And they have some amazing, um, really long migration patterns that they've been able to match and really long, um, sightings rematches of like 20 years of whale being seen. And then a whale being seen again, that they've been able to do. And it's been, it's super cool, um, to see what they're doing. And now we know where, where she is We're spying on her. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's how we get some stories. Um, yeah. Yeah. If you want to also spy on Big Mama or other humpback whales, you can check out our website. We've got a whole bunch, about almost 200 humpback stories and a bunch that are specifically Big Mama. So on our website, you can just search uh, Big Mama or you can search humpback and that'll bring you to all kinds of awesome humpback uh, stories on our website, whaletales.org. Yeah. It'll be in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Okay, and before we wrap up our episode, we want to talk about the fact that summer is coming. And in particular, uh, we wanted to share some things that you can do to help whales, dolphins, and porpoises that have to do with the summertime. So, Lindsay, can you tell us how we can be safe on the water and keep these animals safe? So, as summer approaches, we want to to remind everyone to stay at least 200 meters away from all wild whales, and that is in a boat in the water if you're swimming on a paddleboard or a kayak or anything small like that you can still harm the whales if you're in a small vessel and the whales could harm you just by being whales um and also in from the air drones are very new and their technology is pretty cool and you can get amazing footage from them but they can still cause disturbances for whales they do make noise and you don't have 100 percent control over them so please uh keep them at least 200 meters above whales at all times In the Salish Sea, there has been new regulations announced starting June 1st, so just a couple of days after this podcast goes live. The regulations are now that you must stay at least 400 meters away from all killer whales uh, in the Salish Sea and off the coast of BC. 
Well-watching companies can apply to have certificates to go closer to non-Southern residents, so bigs uh, tr or transient killer whales. And again, just, that's a great thing to check when you're looking into different whale watch companies to make sure they're following the guidelines and they're responsible with all wildlife, but that they also have that certificate before you go whale watching with them, regardless of the kinds of killer whales that you're seeing. So again, 200 meters away from all wild whales, dolphins, and porpoises from however you may be viewing them, uh, whatever platform, and 400 meters away from all southern resident killer whales, um, or any killer whale in BC if you're unsure of the ecotype, just to be sure. And something to keep in mind as we head into summer up here in Canada, um, and an important reminder for any time you are on the water, regardless of where you live. Um, and I thought I would talk a bit about what you can do if you're not on the water, or this also applies if you're on the water, but it's more about like, um, what you bring with you to an outdoor environment. So one of our favorite things to do when we hang out in the summertime is have a picnic. And so we try to bring, you know, stuff in reusable water bottles, uh, reusable containers, and make sure even if, even if they're not reusable, that we take our trash and dispose of it responsibly don't leave it for the wind to take to the ocean um one thing that i think a lot of us do is you know like you don't need to have a big fancy picnic blanket old sheets or old blankets that are you know you don't like to use in your bed anymore are great picnic blankets um and uh i always try to have a reusable um like one of those reusable cold uh sippy cups or like straw cups because you never know when you just like really want like an iced tea or a something fancy and you know you want to make sure that you're treating yourself but also being responsible for the environment uh, and I guess the last big find that I've had the last little few years I guess has been uh, using mineral sunscreen um, it's usually better for the ocean I've also found as somebody who has really sensitive skin that it's been way better for my skin um, and I, I've gotten like solid mineral sunscreen, so it comes in like almost like a little mini deodorant. Um, not as good for face, but really good for body because it's really easy to put on. It's not messy. It does, it's not going to leak in your bag, so you can just have them hanging out. And um, it's they're usually in like uh, easily recyclable and recycled plastic containers. And then the mineral sunscreen uh, doesn't have any weird chemicals that can have strange interactions when they enter our water stream so yay for mineral sunscreen yeah and we will put a link to that um, not necessarily the products but definitely some of the chemicals that you should be on the lookout for when you are buying sunscreen but just usually um, if you're just looking quickly just using mineral sunscreen instead of the normal kinds of sunscreen is uh, a better safer option for your skin and also for the world around you hooray I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So as always, we'll have a link to the What You Can Do page in our show notes, uh, the What You Can Do page from our website in the show notes. And you can also find it on our website under Tales of Saving Whales. It's just a really great list of small things that you can do every day to help cetaceans, marine life, and the planet. Yeah, and you can also find all the links to subscribe to our podcast on the left-hand side of our website, right next to the Tales of Saving Whales section. Uh, and you can subscribe to it through the podcast, uh, your podcast catcher of choice, however you're listening to it now, of course. And you can also listen to it directly on our site, if that's how you want to do it. Yay! Other exciting items on our website include a link to our merch. You can find us on Redbubble and check out our awesome shirts, mugs, stickers, bags. We've got all kinds of cool stuff uh, and hope that you like it. And it helps to support our podcast and the rest of the stuff that we're doing with Wales. 
And if you're looking for another way to support us in the work that we do, you can head to our Patreon page. Uh, by becoming a patron, you can vote in polls to decide on what we'll talk about next. And you also get a shout out on social media, plus lots of fun and exciting rewards that we will be telling you about soon. We've got some big dreams for our future podcast episodes, and we can't do it without you. So please check it out. Uh, we're very excited to grow that community. Yeah, and if you are unable to support us on Patreon, there's still lots of other ways you can help us. Uh, you can rate and review us on iTunes or anywhere else you might listen to podcasts. It helps other people find us and also lets us know what you think. We're just starting out. This is only our second episode, and we would love to hear your feedback um, to see what we should be doing. Yay! Uh, you can follow us on social media at whaletales.org on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can search for podcast-specific posts by using the hashtag whaletalespodcast. And last but definitely not least, on our website, you can share your stories. Remember that it's not a big deal. It's not scary. You don't have to be an expert. And it doesn't have to have happened yesterday. If you've seen a citation, uh, we would just love to hear about it. And we'd love to add your story to our library. So click on the share link on our site or contact us on social media and tell us about your incredible cetacean encounter yeah and i know that that was a lot of information about lots of different things that just happened in the last minute and a half so but don't worry you can find the links to everything we just said on our website which is whale-tales.org tales like the stories not tales like the animals Plus, while you're there, you can take a look at our library featuring over 500 different stories uh, featuring all sorts of different whales, dolphins, porpoise species. Thanks again for listening and supporting us. We'll be back again on the last Wednesday of next month with more fun facts, stories, and super nerdy trivia that Nicole has done a big deep dive into. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Happy Mother's Day to you moms. Happy upcoming Father's Day to you dads. And thanks, everybody. Have a whaley great day.